0: You're listening to the transformative podcast brought to you by the Research Center for the History of Transformations at the University of Vienna. Hello, I'm glad to welcome our listeners to our current installment, the transformative podcast made and published by the Research Center for the History of Transformation here in Vienna. I'm Anastasia Schacht, and joining me today is Sergei Ratchenko, a distinguished professor with John Hopkins and a visiting professor at the Cardiff University, who specializes in Cold War, nuclear history, as well as sino soviet security politics. Hello, Sergei, and thank you for joining me today.
1: Happy to be here. Thank you, Anastasia.
0: My initial plan was, as you know, to talk to you in something like late socialism and erosion of authoritarianism, but here we are, as of first day February 24, Russian troops invaded Ukraine, unleashing an aggressive war, which seems to aim into extinguishing the Ukrainian state and taking an imaginary revenge on the collective West, I would also claim. Nothing of that excuses this war, obviously, and with our utmost hopes fixed on Ukraine, it's clear that this war has changed the world. I've heard some of the colleagues saying this be the return of history, and this is where I would like to ask you, is history back in Fukuyama's terms and Putin's terms? whatever he claims history to be. Was it ever gone in Putin's Russia? And if it is there or is back,
1: then where are we returning? To the Cold War or where? That's a very deep philosophical question. Of course, I'm a historian and not a philosopher, but Francis Fukuyama drew for inspiration on the German philosopher Hegel. There's one particular thing or episode in Hegel, as it were, And that is this confrontation between two individuals. Mm -hmm. One seeks domination over the other Mm -hmm. and the other eventually submits to domination. So one becomes the master and the other becomes a slave. The one who submits to domination, the slave, does that for fear of death. So, you've got a confrontation between the master and a slave. The problem for the master is that once the master gets recognition from the slave that he's the master and the slave is the slave, this recognition is no longer satisfying to the master because the master wants to be recognized by an equal and not by a slave. And what Hegel was working towards in his philosophy was a kind of social development which eventually results in individuals being able to acquire equal recognition. And when they acquire equal recognition, this becomes the end of history. Fukuyama reapplied these thoughts to the end of the Cold War, to the fall of the Berlin Wall, to the end of communism and said, well, look, now that communism is out, we have only liberal democracy that remains and under liberal democracy, Everybody is recognized as equal, so therefore you have the end of history in the Hegelian sense. It doesn't mean that events stop happening, but history as such ends. If you say the master and the slave, they're states and not individuals, you could say that, for example, a state could force others to recognize that it is effectively the ruler, and others would have to submit to its will or risk destruction. That is how things happen throughout history. However, in the 1950s, a certain development occurred that made that impossible. The nuclear revolution followed, of course, the testing of the atomic weapons in the United States, 1945, then in the Soviet Union, 1949. By 1950s, you have the development of thermonuclear bombs and missiles, and what we have with that is the development of effectively what became the Mutual Assured Destruction Doctrine. So states could no longer great powers like the Soviet Union or the United States, it could not actually go overstep the brink and go to nuclear war because that would be suicidal. So therefore, in Hegelian terms, you've got a problem here in the sense that a slave cannot be destroyed. This kind of contradiction between the master and the slave that you have in Hegel is somehow suspended. So I would argue, contrary to Fukuyama, that history ended actually in the 1950s during the nuclear revolution, and not in 1989, but that's, uh, you know, that's an interesting twist on Fukuyama.
0: In this term, do we define Putin and the actions of the Russian government as an attempt to self-construct as a slave in freeing themselves from the presumed superiority by alleged
1: domination? Philosophically, it's an interesting way to look at it. If you take a look at broader kind of historical development of Russian and before that Soviet foreign policy, Moscow has always aspired to be recognized. Who's supposed to recognize Moscow? It is not, let's say, you know, Syria and Venezuela that Moscow is interested to be recognized. The recognizer is the West, and specifically the United States. Moscow has wanted to be recognized by the United States, acknowledging that the United States, in the Hegelian term, is the master, as it were. Throughout the Cold War, and perhaps even now, the Soviet economy and the Russian economy today are nowhere on the scale of the West, so, this is not where greatness is going to come from. However, Moscow still has nuclear weapons, and Putin, much as Soviet general secretaries, much as like Nikita Khrushchev, who also used the atomic bluff and atomic diplomacy quite a lot, you know, Putin is sitting on a pile of nuclear weapons and holds his finger on the button. We are able to destroy the whole world and you can't do anything to us. So this is an interesting dynamic. You can see Putin totally buying into this. Yeah. And even in recent days with the invasion of Ukraine, obviously, the invasion is not going particularly well for him, uh, but he has already resorted to nuclear brinksmanship.
0: Which unfortunately brings us to the level far beyond the actual tragedy which is happening, which means Ukraine becomes just playground for the ambition which is targeting somebody
1: else. Oh, absolutely. So we have with Ukraine, if you think about the weeks in the run-up to the conflict, we have Putin making demands. It's actually quite similar to what the Soviet leaders did. Let's say Nikita Khrushchev did that in 1958, You know, he issued the Berlin Ultimatum, which actually was born of the sense of self-perceived greatness. We have nuclear power. Surely we can have our rights to dominate our neighbors or whatever, or in the Nikita Khrushchev's terms, we have rights to impose our solution on the undivided Berlin and get the Americans out of there. So he issues this ultimatum and Putin also issued the same ultimatum. So in Putin's case, it's this whole idea about guaranteeing that Ukraine never enters NATO, that it's in the Russian sphere of influence, etc. He thought I think that he could get somewhere with those demands. Now, some people say that it's all pretext and that he just made it up and those demands were not real demands. I don't think so. I think Putin started from the premise that Russia is this great military power that has nuclear weapons and that nobody will mess with Russia. Therefore, if Russia makes demands, to some people they will seem outrageous, but in a different way they seem just like some kind of a a demand of a great power, then eventually others will recognize that Russia is a great power. You don't mess with them as long as they make demands that don't go too far. And he calculated that Ukraine did not go too far. Why? Because, well, after all, Ukraine is not covered by NATO. Ukraine is not covered by Article 5. Therefore, Ukraine, in Putin's mind, is something like Hungary was, for example, for Nikita Khrushchev when he introduced the Soviet military there in 1956. Yeah, Mm -hmm. the Americans were saying, of course, you know, the anti-communist revolution in Hungary, you know, was something that the Americans felt very emotional about at the time, and they were encouraging the protests. When push came to shove in Hungary in 1956, the Americans did absolutely nothing. And the Soviets were able to just basically crush the resistance at considerable cost. But they were able to impose themselves on Hungary. 1968, we have Czechoslovakia. Another example, you know, this is seen as being within the Soviet sphere of influence. By who? Not just by the Soviets, but also in many ways by the West. So therefore, Brezhnev is able to introduce Soviet forces there in August 1968. And the Americans do what? They do exactly nothing because it was already kind of taken for granted that Czechoslovakia was Soviet. So for Putin, this is a similar situation. He wants recognition as a great power. He feels like great powers are entitled to spheres of influence. He feels like Ukraine was already in the Russian sphere of influence because it's not covered by NATO. And he was keen to make sure that it remains so. Therefore, he calculated that he will threaten that military force and the West will basically fold and Ukraine will have no other choice but to agree to his terms. Of course, what we have in in the case of Ukraine is Ukraine refusing to agree to his terms. And that is an interesting situation, almost like a David and Goliath type situation. Ukraine seemingly so weak, so disorganized internally, so politically fractious, Uh, suddenly came together saying, no, absolutely not, you're not going to swallow us. And Putin then had to do something, either crawl back into his lair in defeat and say, okay, we bluffed, but we were defeated, or to do what, in his mind, a great power would have to do, and that is to actually carry out threats. So in this case, it's a question Mm -hmm. of credibility for him. This is why I think he invaded Ukraine. This
0: brings me to probably the last question. We also observe quite a discrepancy in the public opinion and the Russian-speaking community. So while seemingly far too vast, seems to be sympathetic with Putin's war, There is still quite a considerable amount of people who go on those anti-war rallies that are not ceasing throughout what's more than a week, which is quite a surprising situation for present-day political landscape in Russia. We do have people either actively protesting or signing petitions or actually leaving this country. And this is what I thought to be the main topic of this. Is Russia backsliding to totalitarianism within it?
1: If, let's say, a few months ago somebody would ask that, I would say, well, yeah, of course, you know, Russia has been sliding towards authoritarianism, things have becoming more difficult, but come on, it's nowhere near Stalinism, rather, or even nowhere near China. For this matter, because China would never allow the amount of dissent that Russia allowed until recently, or the free media that were relatively free. I mean, Russia hasn't had really free media for some time, but even still, there was still substantial space for Russian journalists to speak out, Mm -hmm. for people to criticize the regime. And when uh, some observers in the West called... Putin and other Stalin, I would usually smirk at the suggestion saying, oh, come on, you just don't know, you don't remember what Stalin was. I mean, this was bloodbath, right, in the 1930s. Hundreds of thousands of people were sentenced and killed, and many millions then ended up in the gulag. I mean you cannot even compare the situation. Mm-hmm. So this was my position until fairly recently. What has changed now is what we've seen is Russia is just on this remarkable trajectory, remarkable obviously in a negative sense, because we have seen in a matter of you days, change. yeah, so, a yes. few days, such unprecedented clampdown on freedoms in Russia. What? The social media being banned, uh, foreign media being chased out of Russia, domestic media being basically shut down if it's critical, and also... The uh, penalties being uh, increased, yeah, for speaking up against war. I watched that Duma meeting where they approved the law, which now gives something Mm -hmm. like 15 years for people protesting. And what struck me there is just, you know, how all of this passed without any discussion. Oh, yeah, 15 years for opposing war. Okay, yeah, everybody votes yes. I mean, obviously, we knew that the Russian parliament was a rubber stamp parliament and a joke. But when you see that, happen before your eyes, you think, oh my God, you know, where is this going? Now, with this kind of situation unfolding in Russia, I feel like the Iron Curtain is coming down a lot faster, and people are fleeing Russia in large numbers, certainly those who belong to what you would call the liberal intelligentsia, some even in the policy community, who used to find excuses for Putin and simply no longer can. Now they face a choice. Do you really go full-blown Putinist and say, yeah, we're fighting a a just war against Nazis or the West, which is a preposterous idea. Or do you call things as they are? And that means that you can no longer exist in Russia. You can no longer agree with your own conscience. So you have to, you have to escape. And people are fleeing Russia, as we have seen. It seems, you know, the Russian saying about it, how a Russian takes a long time to saddle the horses but rides fast. So I think we are in this kind of position. We have seen Russia on a slow slide towards authoritarianism that has taken years and years, and we can go all the way back to early Putin to find first moves in that direction. We remember Yukos. We remember the killing of journalists, the killing of Nemtsov. All of those things happened, and many of them happened years ago, right? So we have been on this trajectory, but now the pace of change is, is just quickening. And I wonder whether we are hitting towards some kind of reincarnation of Stalinist USSR. And that makes me worried. That's just a horrible situation.
0: I hope it helps our listeners to get a better and deeper understanding what we've been doing now on the sheer complexity of the whole situation. I really do hope that, in a military sense, Ukraine prevails, and for the sake of all of us, and somehow David saves the Goliath.
1: To bring us back to Fukuyama, you know, Ukraine has shown in recent weeks that it is not a slave. It's standing up to this wannabe master Russia, and it's fighting back. It's saying, I'm not giving recognition to you, you know, forget it. And of course, it's, it's been threatened with utter destruction. We'll see how that plays out, but I think the stakes here are high for all of us, and so all reasonable Russians, I think, should really be interested in Ukraine's victory in this war.
0: You have been listening to the transformative podcast produced by Redset in Vienna.